just making a big statement, big statement. Hopefully you agree with it, but I'll make it nonetheless. Without question, in my mind, Jesus Christ is the most influential person who has ever lived. Most of the world dates its calendars according to his birth. More paintings have been drawn of him, more songs sung of him, more books written about him than any other. The New Testament, which is the record of his life and teachings, is the most read, most translated book of all time. And the fascination with Jesus didn't stop in the past, friends, but it continues on in the present day. The Yale historian Kenneth Scott Lauderette says, quote, As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effective history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. That influence appears to be mounting. In the 20th century, uh, Christianity experienced unprecedented growth throughout the world, particularly in Asia and in Africa, even in America, where Christianity's influence has waned. Jesus is always a topic of great interest. Just look back a few years ago, one of the most talked about movies of the 21st century was Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, about the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. And amazingly, this movie was not in English, right? Had no major actors, yet it grossed over $600 million dollars. Because Jesus is a constant figure and fixture of our fascination. Even individuals who are not followers of Jesus find him so utterly intriguing and fascinating. The great French general, Napoleon Bonaparte, said, quote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. What makes Jesus' influence, I think, even more remarkable is that in so many respects, his life appears to be very ordinary. There's nothing recorded about his, his external appearance, his family, his socioeconomic status. He was born in an obscure town and worked as a carpenter until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held political office. Yet he dramatically changed the world. It's been said of Jesus, quote, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. But how can that be? How can someone who, in many respects, was so ordinary, how could it be the most influential person to ever live and dramatically alter the course of human history, right? What makes him so unique? What's so special about him? Those questions cry out for an answer, don't they? Well, the answer, friends, is that Jesus is God in human flesh. This is what he claimed, 
And this is what he demonstrated. And that's exactly where the rub lies. People are quick to affirm that Jesus was a great teacher. He was a wise man. He was a powerful prophet. But God in human flesh? God in human flesh? That's the dividing line. That's the issue of issues. That's what makes Jesus so unique, so controversial. If Jesus is really God, then it changes everything, doesn't it? Now, for 2,000 years, historic biblical Christianity has affirmed that truth. And the beginning of the Gospel of John is a crucial, crucial declaration of that fact. And today we're going to look at that passage, what is often called the prologue. It's an introduction, so to speak, to the rest of the book of John. And it offers this very clear, very memorable, creative, majestic statement on the deity of Christ. And also, as you look in the prologue, some of the most famous and I think important verses in all the Bible are contained in these 18 verses. We also see in the prologue how John just masterfully picks up on themes here that he's going to later develop in the rest of the Gospel. It's really powerful to preach through this. It's just almost, you almost approach this text with a bit of trepidation because it is that powerful and so influential and so majestic. But we're going to try here today. Now there are four sections to the prologue. Four sections. Today we're going to cover the first two sections, uh, and then next time we'll cover the last two. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and the first section of the prologue is the introduction to the Word, the introduction to the Word, and it covers verses 1 to 5. Here we get a brief but really staggering overview of the Word. John chapter 1. And the opening verse says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, to begin here, who or what is the Word? Well, the Word is a title for Jesus. There's no doubt that is whom John is speaking about, though he doesn't identify explicitly until verse 17. He probably leaves it hanging there for a while to leave the reader in a bit of suspense. But we know whom he is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. So why does he refer to Jesus as the Word? Why doesn't he not just say, uh, in the beginning was the Son of God, or some other title or description about Jesus? He certainly could have done so, and it would have had the same identity. But I think he uses this title, the Word, because it has an incredible layered amount of depth and power to it. Let me explain. And you guys got to track with me here this morning, so put on those thinking caps, okay? And get your pens and pencils out. You might want to write down a few notes in your Bible or in the sermon note sheet there in your, in your, in your bulletin, because this is really awesome stuff. All right. In the Greek language, there are two terms for the word, word, okay? There is the Greek word, rhema, which was used for a written or a spoken word. 
There, there was also the Greek word lagos. It was a broader word. And it would be used for both a written or spoken word, but it was also used for internally, your thought, your reason. So to put it simply, rhema is the, it refers to the outward reality, a word or a spoken word, while logos refers to both the inward and the outward reality. So G, excuse me, John uses logos because Jesus is both inward and outward the Word of God. He is both inwardly God, fully God, and outwardly He is the full expression of who God is. So for example, if you want to know what Jesus is like, Jesus tells us, look at Himself. Excuse me, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at Him. He is the expression. In John 14.9, Jesus says, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. So everybody tracking with me? The word logos has this kind of dual meaning of an inward reality, an inward uh, reality, and also an outward expression of that reality. So where then did John get this idea of using the word in this capacity for Jesus? Well, the phrase, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, ties back to its Old Testament roots, right? Where the Word of God is what God would use as His means or His agent in creation, in revelation, and salvation. God would use His Word to bring those things about. So for example, with creation, in Genesis 1, God spoke the universe into existence. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. With revelation, God discloses knowledge to humans through His word. Jeremiah 1, 4-5 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, he's just bebopping along in his life. And all of a sudden, God tells him, I have appointed you to be a prophet before you were even born. How would Jeremiah ever know that? Unless God revealed it to him by his word. And then the word brings about salvation. You guys are probably familiar with this passage. Isaiah 55, 10-11 it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So in the context, he's drawing this analogy, how the rain brings about life and growth. And so too, friends, the Word of God brings about eternal life and spiritual growth. It is the Word of God that accomplishes those things. And so, going here to John, it's this comprehensive title for Jesus' life and ministry. And that would have resonated very well with the Jewish aspect of the audience, who would have been steeped in these Old Testament backgrounds, right? 
One writer says, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his son. That's pretty neat, isn't it? How God, or excuse me, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes this title and taps into this imagery of the Word of God and how it was used in creation, how it was used in revelation, how it was used in salvation, and then applies it and shows how it's fulfilled in Jesus. But there's more. It's likely John was writing not only to a Jewish audience, but also a Gentile audience. And so this word, logos, would have had significance for the Gentile audience as well. You say, why is that? Well, in Greek philosophical thought, the word logos was significant. Because for them, the logos was seen as this impersonal, excuse me, impersonal principle of reason that governed the universe. Okay? It wasn't personal, but impersonal. So what John says is that the logos, hey, you guys are partly right about that. There's some truth in what you're saying, that there is a governing principle of the universe, but it is not impersonal, but it is personal. And that person is Jesus. By the way, the idea of an impersonal governing principle is incoherent. How could it make decisions about governing the universe if it's impersonal? You guys tracking with that? You need personality. And that's what Jesus is. So I hope you see, by the way, just the, the, the sheer brilliance of what John has crafted out here. He, he's taken the Logos here and how it applies to the Jewish audience, how it applies to the Gentile audience in showing the fulfillment of the Old Testament and these, these truths that the Gentiles would have understood and resonate but was incomplete and how it brings it all together and shows that it's all coming together in Christ. Pretty cool stuff. And one more, by the way, John is only the only one who uses that title, the word for Jesus. And it's only here in the prologue. And he uses it one time in Revelation when he says the name by which he is called is the word of God. So, John makes three assertions about the word. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. So that phrase, in the beginning, should sound familiar. You guys recognize that? Where does that come from? Genesis, opening verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John's clearly alluding there to Genesis. He said, well, what does that phrase, in the beginning, mean? What well, means before the universe was created? So the word was there before the universe was created. But John is saying even more than that. Right? He's not just saying John was there, see, a year before the universe was created, but then the universe got created. No, he's not saying that. He's saying even more than that. He's saying the Word has always existed. Always existed. One scholar says in the original Greek language, the idea is this, quote, in the beginning the Word was already eternally existing. So the Word is eternal. It's eternal. Jesus has always existed. And by the way, I mentioned last week how 
John gives us kind of more of a heavenly vantage point of Jesus' life than the other Gospels. John talks about Jesus' earthly life, but gives us more of these heavenly snapshots. And so notice how John doesn't start with the birth of Jesus like Luke does or Matthew or the genealogies. He starts with his preexistence, right? This is who Jesus is. It's all the same Jesus, but one starts with his eternity, one starts with him coming into this world as a baby. So, in the beginning was the Word. Second, the Word was with God. In John's Gospel, when he refers to God, he's primarily referring to God the Father, kind of like a shorthand, if you will. And so Jesus was with the Father from all eternity. And this is important because it shows that Jesus is distinct from the Father. God is a Trinitarian God. There's one divine essence, but three persons, friends. And as John unfolds, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity as well. So Jesus is distinct from the Father, but it's interesting also that that expression, with God, means more than just that the Word existed alongside of God in some sort of just kind of like distinct but non-harmonizing way. It actually conveys a sense of real active participation and communion with one another. You see, friends, between the Trinity, there's this perfect, eternal, complete, sinless relationship that's existed before time began. And as I point out sometimes, and what we need to be reminded of sometimes, is that God did not need us to be complete. He wasn't bored with himself or lonely. He didn't need us to complete anything about himself. He made us just because he wanted to. Not because he had to. So the Trinity enjoys this perfect relationship. I love what John, in John 17, Jesus prays, quote, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus did not come into existence on Christmas morning, friends. He existed before all time and eternity with the Father. Third, the Word was God. So John makes it very clear that Jesus is God. He shares the same essence and attributes as the Father. One writer says that the Word, quote, does not by himself make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs also to Him. And so the deity of Jesus, friends, is the centerpiece of John's Gospel. You go down a little bit in your Bible there to verse 18, the very end of the prologue, it says this, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So at the beginning and end of the prologue, John's making this point that Jesus is God. And at the climactic scene of the gospel, when Thomas has that great confession of faith after seeing the resurrected Jesus, what does he say? My Lord and my God. Friends, this belief in the deity of Jesus, it runs throughout the whole New Testament. John gives us some incredible vantage points. But he's not alone in this conviction. Paul says in Romans 9.5 that Jesus is, quote, God over all. 2 Peter 1.1 refers to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. James 2.1 says Jesus is, quote, the Lord of glory. And that's even all the more remarkable because James was his brother. 
Imagine saying that about your brother. Unless you're just firmly convinced that that is the case. And friends, the apostles were convinced. And the early church was convinced. So much so that when persecution raged against them, to deny just that simple fact, hey, you guys can do your business. You can have church. Let's just get rid of this Jesus is God stuff and you're okay. Let's just worship the emperor too and throw them as the kind of replaces Jesus a little bit. That's all you have to do and you'll be fine. And they said, no, we will not renounce that. Jesus is fully God and we're willing to lay down our lives for that fact. They believed it with all their heart that Jesus was God in human flesh. By the way, that's the dividing line between Christianity and every single belief system that kind of derives out of the biblical foundation. So, for example, Islam, which looks to the Old Testament, looks to the New Testament as somehow kind of having some truths in there. They believe that Jesus is born of a virgin. They believe that he's a great prophet, but they deny that he's fully God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they don't believe that he is fully God. He's a created being. It doesn't resonate with what the Bible teaches here. It doesn't resonate with John's prologue. Jesus is God, friends. And so when these groups come along and say, oh, they're all just saying the same thing, it makes you want to say, what? How can you say that? How can they say that? If you say that, then okay, the Democrats and Republicans, they're saying the same thing, right? They agree about everything, right? No, not at all. Then why do you say that about the religions? So John has said quite a lot for one verse, hasn't he? kind of like drinking water out of a fire hydrant, this first verse here. I mean, it's just coming at you. Very simple, but incredibly profound. So just to recap, the Word was in the beginning, He was with God, and He was God. Now in verse 2, John writes, He was in the beginning with God. So in a sense, John just kind of reiterates his point, probably because verse 1 was so densely packed and it needed to be repeated. But then in verse 3, John points out that Jesus is the Creator. He says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So as we said, in the Old Testament, the the Word of God was the agent of creation. And here we see how that agent was Jesus. And Jesus, excuse me, John makes his point both positively and negatively for emphasis and, and for comprehensiveness. We do the same thing. We say, man, I ate everything on my plate. Nothing was left. You realize you don't need to say nothing was left, right? If you said you ate everything on the plate, we got it. But why do you say that? Nothing was left. You're making your point, right? John does the same thing. So he says, positively, Jesus made everything. Negatively, there's nothing that he didn't make. Just doubling down there. So he made everything, friends. Both in the natural and the supernatural realms. Talking about angels, too. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus made it all. Everything. And John doesn't mention this, but just to kind of complete the discussion, Jesus not only made everything, but he sustains everything. 
Colossians 1.17 goes on to say, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.2-3 says, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There again, the word of His power. But He is upholding it. Do you realize how amazing that is? I mean, this universe is about 100 billion light years in diameter, they say. So Jesus is holding every single galaxy together. Everything. Those things don't just happen by chance. They're not set in cruise control. And he upholds every atom in the universe. When you go down to the microscopic level, he holds it all together. Do you realize this morning, friends, that if Jesus just lifted his hand for a second, for a second, you would die. And this universe would disintegrate. Just one second if he decided to. Now we're thankful that he's faithful to his promises, right? But we should always keep that in mind as we just kind of go about our day and we think, oh, this is just my life and I'm doing my things and, and everything I can just count on. To be reminded that Jesus is sustaining everything by the word of his power. Now in verses 4 to 5, John elaborates on the word's involvement with creation. He says there, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John says that Jesus, that in Jesus was life. Life. What does he mean by that? Well, I think in one sense he means what, like what he's just talking about. He's the creator. He's made everything. So everything owes its existence to Jesus. But notice how he kind of narrows the focus to humanity. In other words, all people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, they owe their existence to him. They would not move and breathe if it wasn't for Jesus. They can reject Him, but yet they, they still rest on Him to even exist. But there's more to it. John, in his Gospel, the word life means more than just physical life very often. It means eternal life. In John 5.24, for instance, he says, Whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So friends, Jesus offers eternal life to those who believe in him. And this eternal life is not just quantity of life, meaning it goes on forever, but it's quality of life. In other words, eternal life is about knowing God, a complete change of existence a complete renewal of who you are because now you know God and all things have become new. Amen? And so Jesus will even say this in John 17, 3. He says, This is eternal life, that, you know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Your life changes because you know God personally. And then finally, notice that Jesus, excuse me, John connects life and light. Jesus offers eternal life, and it enlightens humanity. There's a sense in which it brings light to humanity. And for the first time, we're given a little bit of a hint here that everything isn't ideal in the world that the Word is made. 
There's things that are wrong. There's darkness. And in John's Gospel, darkness is a symbol of humanity's rebellion and sin against God and alienation from God. And that theme of light and darkness is going to run throughout the Gospel and you're going to see where Jesus declares later where He says, I am the light of the world. Amen? So that first section there was about the introduction to the Word. Now you're thinking, well, we've got one more section to cover. It's going to be a long sermon, huh? Well, the second section is pretty brief. The second section is the witness to the Word. The witness to the Word. Verses 6 to 8, we encounter the witness to the Word. It says there, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now you might think that John's speaking about himself, but he's not. He's actually talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Who was that? Well, you know that the Old Testament predicted that there would be a forerunner, someone who would prepare the way of the Lord. And John was that person. He preached a message of repentance to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of their Messiah. And so when someone would repent, when they would turn from their sins, they would demonstrate it by going out to the River Jordan and John would baptize them there. And that's why he was called John the Baptist. It's not he wasn't the first in a denomination. It's that he was the first who was the or he was the baptizer. He was known as the one who baptized people. John's ministry, friends, was incredibly powerful. People came out to hear John preach in droves, and the crowds were enthralled by his preaching, and many were cut to the heart about their level of sin and their need for repentance. And so, the, even the religious leaders, if you drop down to verse 19 there, immediately after the prologue, it picks up with John and how the religious leaders are asking him, are you the Christ? Because they saw the crowds coming to him. But John said, no, I'm not the Christ. And he pointed to Jesus, and when he started his ministry, he says, He is the Christ. Or in our passage here, He is the light. He's the light. John, of course, is not the light. But he's very important, isn't he? All four Gospels mention him. He's intricately connected to Jesus as the forerunner. And you see, notice also in here, he is called the witness. The witness. And that's a key theme in the Gospel of John, this idea of someone who is a witness for Jesus. And I think it's a key theme because John knows, the, the Apostle John knows, is that, look, as I'm writing this Gospel here, I'm making these monumental claims about Jesus. I need to support what I'm saying, right? You don't, you don't just say the things I'm saying without pointing to evidence. And so he points to Jesus' miracles. He points to Jesus' teachings. And he also points to witnesses who will affirm what he says. And so, John the Baptist was the first of a long line of witnesses that you'll see in the Gospel of John. And the question is, is how will people respond to that witness? Will people believe John's witness that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the light of the world? Well, we will pick up next week with that question. We're going to see that some believe while others do not. 
And so, friends, the deed of Jesus, as we began this message, is really the supreme claim, isn't it? It's the issue of issues. The dividing line. And let me just pause for a second here and to ask you, where do you stand with that question? How do you respond to that claim that Jesus is God? Have you embraced that truth in your life? You guys listening to me? Has that ever become a reality where it's not just something that you might think about or maybe something that you give a general assent to? I guess so. Yeah. But something that has captured your imagination, controlled your life, something that you would be like the early church, be willing to die for because it is something that has transformed your life to such a degree that Jesus is who He claimed to be. If not, just in the honesty of your heart right now, I'm so grateful that you're here today and that you're hearing this majestic passage about John's description of the Word. So let me urge you and plead with you to think about it hard this week. This claim that Jesus is God. To think really hard, where do I stand with that claim of all claims? Where do I stand with that? Because that's not something that you just hear every day. And it's not something you, you just pass over and go about your day and you just go on to lunch or you go on about whatever is left of your day and the things that you want to do. It stops you in your tracks and makes you think about it. And I ask you to think about it here today. And to go home and to read that passage maybe again and again, and to ask God to help you to understand what it is saying and to believe it with all of your hearts. Too much is at stake. Next week, friends, please come back because you see the difference, as John describes, that it makes when we do believe that Jesus is indeed the Word of God, the Son of God, who was in the beginning with God, who was with God, and who is God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage where we see these words that are written that are so simple, just simple words. John writes in a very simple fashion but yet so profound that we drown in it. They're so wonderful. Lord, my prayer today is that you would open hearts and minds to understand these things that we have covered here this morning. These things are the most important things of life. These claims that are found in these verses are the most important claims of all.
And so, Lord, I pray you would help those who perhaps have never understood and embraced this claim that Jesus is God. And that's why he has changed the world as he has. That it would become a living reality in their lives. Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May they think long and hard about these things, Lord. And come to that great realization that these words are truth in their life. And Lord, for your people, may it wake us up. May we be woken up out of our slumber that this is the God we worship. And forgive us for going about our business and bumbling along in the Christian life sometimes and not being reminded of the power and the majesty of Jesus as the Word of God. And as we'll see next week, His incredible love for us, that He would come to us in the flesh. Lord, may we live in the light of this majestic prologue. We thank you. We bless you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.